0: Invite you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter eight. We're gonna be looking this morning at what a number of men have called the greatest chapter in the Bible. Romans chapter eight. And we'll begin reading back in chapter seven, verse twenty-one. Romans seven twenty one, all the way through verse 4 of chapter 8. Let's hear God's word to us. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for the way that you speak to us through it, for the way that you assure us of all that is ours in Christ, in it and through it. We pray now that you would send your Spirit to do what only He can, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found only in Him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every Christian struggles with assurance of God's love. Painful circumstances can cause us to question, if God really loved me, why would he allow this to happen? Remaining sin can cause us to question, how could God really actually love a failure like me. Dysfunctional human relationships can cause us to question, if, if this is how my earthly father treated me, is it, is it not the same with my heavenly father? We may have differing reasons, but all of us at, at some point in our Christian life and at different points uh, question God's love. And where assurance is lacking, where where we lack this assurance of God's compassion and his love and his care towards us, Christianity will be gutted of its joy. To the degree we doubt God's love, we will be kept from enjoying God and our vast privileges as the children of God. And that's what makes Romans 8 such a precious chapter because it's all about assurance. Paul wants us to possess a settled certainty of God's redemptive love. And and he wants us to possess that not not in some general vague sense as if God uh, loves his people out here but, but in a most pointedly and particular sense. That God loves me. That is what Paul is after in this chapter. His purpose is that you, if you are a Christian, would be overwhelmingly gripped by the love of God for you. And Paul begins our chapter on assurance, with the believer's justification. How, how do you and I know that we are justified? There's nothing tangible about our justification. We can't see it or smell it or taste it or, or feel it. So, so how do we really know that we have been reckoned righteous in Jesus Christ? That's the question that our text is answering this morning. And the answer might surprise you. Paul says that our justified status is verified or confirmed or evidenced by our spirit-wrought devotion to the law. I'll say that again because it's a mouthful, but every, every word is important. Our justified status is verified by our spirit-wrought devotion to God's law. Paul sets this forth in our text by way of three deaths. Notice first uh, that Paul speaks of our death to the law. Our passage begins with a therefore at verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation we're all familiar with Romans 8:1 many of us have memorized it many of us have been greatly comforted by it at different times but but i wonder how many of us have have actually given any conscious thought to this little word therefore it's actually quite crucial to understanding what Paul is telling us here. It indicates that in our passage, Paul is actually drawing a conclusion. In chapter seven, Paul has been demonstrating the powerlessness of the law. God's law is good, but it is unable to bring about the obedience that it requires. And, And that of course is because of sin. And Paul proves this in chapter 7 by way of his own experience. Before his conversion, the law functioned to expose his sin. It shut his mouth and it brought the wrath of God. It was also wielded by his sinful passions to provoke him to sin, bearing fruit for death. Paul tells us in chapter 7 that in his unconverted condition, the the law was not a friend, it was a foe. But Paul no longer bears such a relationship to the law. He tells us in verse 4 of chapter 7 that those who are in Christ Jesus, they've died to the law. This death, of course, does not mean that the Christian no longer has any relation to the law, but it indicates that there's been a radical change in that relation. And and that's why Paul can say in verse 22 that he delights in the law of God in his inner being. The law that once killed him is now the source of his pleasure. And in verse 25, he states, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. There's a wedding together here of delighting and serving. Paul is saying of himself what is true of every Christian, of every one of us here who is in Christ, that he is a slave of righteousness. He now joyfully serves God's righteous law. I think that the term that best sums this up is devotion devotion. It's a pleasure-provoked service and a servant-hearted pleasure where you have this pleasure and this delight wed to this service and this givenness. There you have devotion. Paul's death to the law has resulted in devotion to the law. Maybe you're Wondering how that could possibly be. How could death to the law result in devotion to the law? Well, I think it, it's precisely in this, that, that we don't delight in things that expose our guilt. When I was in grade school, I received my first detention for participating in a food fight. And uh, along with sitting out of recess that day, I was given a slip of paper to bring home. And uh, this slip of paper uh, informed my parents of what I had done. And it was to be signed by them and it was to be returned to the principal the next day. I detested that detention slip. I hated it. I, I despised it. If I could have, I, I would have annihilated it. Why? Well, because it exposed my guilt. It exposed me for who I was and what I had done, and I knew that it would ultimately bring the wrath of my parents. No one in their right mind take pl- takes pleasure in that which curses them. And that's exactly what the law does to each one of us outside of Christ. The law exposes us, telling us that we are guilty. The law slays us, telling us that we are hopeless. The law condemns us, telling us that we are hellbound. Who could love a law like that? Who could love a law like that? Only only someone who is delusional. And yet, the psalmist tells us that the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And this is precisely what Paul says is true of himself now. He now delights in the law of God in his inner being. He now serves it with his mind. The law is now the object of his sanctified devotion. And how could this possibly be? Has Paul lost his mind? Has he lost his mind? No. No, he's lost his guilt. Paul has lost his guilt. The, the dreaded detention slip has been replaced by an award for best behaved students. There is therefore now no condemnation. The very first word in the original in verse 1 is no. It is a potent word. It literally means none or not any. And by placing it at the front of the sentence, Paul is giving special emphasis to it. The stress when we read this verse should be on the no. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you are a Christian, there, there is not a single sin that condemns you. Paul, Paul is saying that your guilt is gone. Imagine that through some foolish decisions, uh, you find yourself with $200,000 worth of credit card debt. These kind of things happen all the time. Things are very tight financially, and you struggle to even make the minimum monthly payments. And on top of that, the, the interest on your credit card debt is so high that every payment you're making is really not even beginning to put a dent in what you owe. It's clear that you will have this debt until your dying day. Some of you know the the immense burden that such a debt can be. The shame, the depression, the anxiety, the despair that it causes. The weight of this debt would be crushing. But imagine, imagine that that one day you open your email and there's there's an email. This, this is not one of those. Those emails from Liberia that promises you $5 million if you send them your social security number, this, this is a legit email. It's, it's from your credit card company, and they're informing you that your debt has been paid in full. Your balance is zero. What would you feel in that moment what would what would be going on inside of you in that moment? I think there would be there would be a a shocking, electrifying, liberating joy, right? And and that's but just a small taste of what Paul is telling us here when he says that there is therefore now no condemnation for us. The crushing weight of the debt of our sin is gone. The guilt which you and I could not escape has been wiped out. And how could that be? How could it be? Well, it's precisely because, as Paul tells us in verse 1, we are in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's favorite way to describe Christians. We are those who are united to Jesus Christ. And one of the great blessings of that union is justification which simply means that we're declared righteous by God. To be justified is to have the verdict, no condemnation, written over our heads. Through union with Christ, our sins are removed from us and Christ's perfect obedience is imputed to us. And upon that basis, God declares us just in the sight of the law. If you are in Christ, the law can no longer declare you guilty or hopeless or hellbound. Its condemning verdict has been terminated. This is what Paul is saying. This is the logic of Paul's therefore in our passage. He's saying, if you delight in the law, then the only explanation for that is that you have been freed from the law's condemnation. Without freedom from sin's guilt, we could never love the law. Thus, our devotion to the law verifies our justified status. Paul continues this line of argumentation by speaking second of our death to sin. How how do you know? I mean, how do you really know that you are justified in Christ? Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul is here introducing evidence. We oftentimes do this in English. So we, we say things uh, like, I know that I have food poisoning for... I have been throwing up all night, okay? The, the throwing up is not the cause of our food poisoning, right? The cause of our food poisoning is, is that we ate a plate of shellfish at the Chinese buffet. It's, that's the cause. But our throwing up is, is a, an effect, it's a symptom, it's an evidence that, that we have Food poisoning, right? And and Paul is saying here in verse 2 that there is a certain symptom of justification through union with Christ. He with this four is presenting evidence. And that evidence is a spiritual liberation from the law of sin and death. And notice that it too is in Christ. This liberation is what Paul refers to back in chapter 6 as our death to sin as an enslaving power. In first century Rome, if one had a large debt that they were unable to pay, they would oftentimes be sold into slavery. They would be forced against their wills to become the property of another. And their debts would be wielded by their master to keep them under his power. As long as that debt remained, they could not be freed from their enslavement. And this this is exactly how sin works. It wields our condemnation as a means to keep us under its corruption. It says things to us like this. There's nothing, nothing you can do to escape your guilt. So you might as well continue in sin. You're going to hell anyways, so why not get as much joy and pleasure out of this earthly life as you possibly can? You've already committed this sin so many times before and God's God's already angry with you anyways, so you, you might as well why not one more time? Sin seizes upon our condemnation to paralyze us with hopelessness. This is why John Murray says that nothing makes God's service more impossible than guilt. Nothing makes God service. You want to serve God? Nothing will make it more impossible than guilt. Consciousness of guilt produces a slavish fear of God. It will cause us to hide from God, not to serve Him. It will cause us to suppress His law, not give ourselves to it. Guilt drives us from God. It drives us from His Word. It drives us from prayer. And it leaves us enslaved to despair. And when that is the case, God's service will be impossible. But Paul is saying that through the life giving power of the Spirit, we have died to sin, we have been liberated from its power. It is no longer our enslaving master. We can now serve God by the Spirit. And this is evidence that our guilt has been dealt with. There is no longer any condemnation for us. Sin can no longer use our guilt as a means to keep keep us under its power, under its dominion. If you desire tangible evidence this morning that you are justified in Christ, here's what Paul is saying. Here are the evidences. Serving God by the Spirit, delighting in His law, loving God and people. To go back to our illustration, you you, you can't see the bacteria that's causing your food poisoning, right? You, you, you can't see it, but, but you know the bacteria is present because you can't stop throwing up, right? And, and in, in the same sense, uh, you cannot see God's justifying verdict, at least not in this life. There will come a day when it will be public, when it will be seen and, and heard, but here and now we can't see it. We don't, we don't audibly hear it. But we can be confident that there is no condemnation when this spiritual liberty and obedience is present. That's what Paul is saying here. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, such devotion, even on our best days, is is not what it ought to be. We often don't delight in God and his law. We often don't love people. Often our hearts are cold. We we often grow weary in the the fight against sin. We stumble. We backslide. we, We doubt. We long to return to Egypt. But... If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, this will surely be true of you. You will long to be like Jesus. There will be days when the desire will be weaker than others. But where the Spirit of God is present, there will be There will be a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. There will be a restlessness over your sin. You will not be able to remain content in sin, at least not for a prolonged period of time. And there will be slow but evident growth in godliness. This is not the kind of growth that can be perceived in a moment. But if you've been a Christian for five years or 10 years or 20 years, you should be able to look back and say, I am not the man that I was when I first encountered Jesus Christ. The power of sin has been deadened. The things that once enslaved me no longer have the grip on my soul that they once did. The world is not as desirable as it once was. Christ and His Word and, and His people are more precious to me now than they were then. There is an evident maturation, and an evident fruit, an evident love that was not there before. And when that's the case, to the extent that you can see that, uh, you can be assured that there is no condemnation for you. And yet, there's something absolutely essential for us to grasp. This is the most crucial thing for us to grasp when we're talking about assurance And that is that the the ultimate ground of our assurance is not our obedience in Christ. That's not the ultimate ground of our assurance. The ultimate ground is Christ's obedience for us. And that's why Paul here, beginning in verse 3, grounds our death to the law and our death to sin in a third death. And that is Christ's death for us. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law could not remove our condemnation. It was powerless to produce obedience in us. But God has now done what the law could not do. And he's done it once for all in Jesus Christ. As our representative, Christ took to himself the likeness of our sinful flesh And he did so that he might bear our sins and that he might bear the punishment that our sins deserved. He bore the infinite wrath and fury of God because of our sins. God, Paul says, condemned our sin in his flesh. And it is just because of this, just because our sin was condemned in Him, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for us. The present application of our salvation, our our present justification in Christ, is grounded in the once-for-all accomplishment of salvation in Christ. Christ died for us. And Paul is telling us here that there is more to Christ condemning sin than just securing our justification. In verse 4, he begins with the words, In order that... And uh, this is actually one word in the Greek, and and it's used to introduce a purpose clause. So Paul Paul is telling us here what the purpose of Christ being condemned in our place was. Why was sin condemned in Christ? Why did God do it? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the purpose for which Christ satisfied the wrath of God and bore our sins was that we might fulfill the law by the Spirit. He suffered the judicial consequences of our sin so that the promise of the new covenant might come to pass. The promise of the new covenant. This was what God had promised his people. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. Listen to this, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. This is a new covenant, not the old covenant. New covenant. Jeremiah 31 I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Christ, as the mediator of the new covenant, died and rose not merely for our forgiveness, He accomplished redemption so that his spirit might write the law of God upon our hearts and enable us to walk in it. He died and rose to break the power of sin in our lives so that we could die to sin and live unto righteousness. And this is the ultimate reason Why our devotion to the law verifies our justification? Because the two are inseparably connected in the cross and the empty tomb. Christ was condemned in your place to bring about spirit-worked, God-word, joy-filled obedience and thus, where there is evidence of such love towards God and people, you can be assured that Christ was condemned for you. So in closing, I just want to ask the question, where, where should we look? Maybe you're, you're feeling a little confused here. Are we supposed to look to ourselves and our own obedience or are we supposed to look to Christ and and His obedience? Where do we look for assurance? Robert Murray McShane famously said, for every look at self, take ten looks to Christ. At the very least, that is what Paul is telling us here. But I... I think he's actually telling us more than that. I think he's saying, look at yourself, look, look at yourself within the context of Christ and the accomplished redemption that he has wrought on your behalf. Our spirit wrought devotion was purchased by Christ. It was the purpose for which he died as our representative. And our spirit-wrought devotion is realized through union with Christ. It is the result of our being married to Christ by the Spirit. Thus, any measure of delighting in and serving God in your life cannot be viewed apart from Christ it must be viewed in the context of Christ for you and Christ in you it's only when that is the case that there will be true genuine gospel assurance in other words never look at yourself apart from Christ this is this is so vital for us to get See, oftentimes we, we pursue assurance of faith, and in pursuing it, we set aside our faith. So, so we want to know that we have genuine faith, and in seeking to know that, uh, we look away from Christ. We look to ourselves, we look to our own obedience, we look to our own experience, we look to our own feelings. But without Christ, without Christ, there can be no assurance. That is what Paul is telling us here. And this surely doesn't undermine what, what we've been saying. Your justified status is verified by your devotion to the law. Your obedience matters in, ins- in assurance. It's vital. It's vital to assurance. But why is that? Well, it's just because that any godliness, any fruitfulness, any fulfilling of the law is evidence of the fact that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. It's evidence of the fact that Christ was condemned in your place because that was the purpose for which he died. And where you can have assurance that Christ is in you and that Christ is for you, then you can certainly have assurance that there is no condemnation for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that as our Father, you desire us to know your love. You do not delight in us walking around wondering if we're loved by God, wondering if we're really saved. But Lord, you give us your word and your spirit that we might know, that we might have a settled certainty of your covenant's particular love for us. Lord, I just pray this morning that uh, for those maybe who have a particularly weak conscience, who are often questioning and, and doubting their salvation, but, but who are truly in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would minister to them in such a way this morning that they would see Jesus and his sufficiency as their Savior, that they would be encouraged and and built up. And Lord, maybe for those who are here who profess faith in Christ, but whose life for years has been dominated by sin, who show no signs of true godliness or fruitfulness or life, no evidence that they've been liberated from the power of sin. Lord, would you come by your Spirit and convict Would you come by your spirit and lay bare and expose and bring to light? And would you come by your spirit and cause uh, such a one to lay hold of Christ truly and really with a faith that works by love? Lord, continue with us now as uh, we worship you. Help us to sing with hearts of gratitude for all that is ours in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.